To the deconstructing Christian, the one for whom a bubble has popped and a rose-coloured glass shattered, there are some things you can't unsee. Things like the polarisation of conservative versus progressive Christianity, the ugliness of ideologies at war within churches, political parties, and even public discourse over world-changing events like civil rights movements and pandemics such as those we've seen this year. Deconstruction is a time when you have to look after your mental health, because that kind of upheaval is hard enough whenever it happens. But if you hit deconstruction during 2020, then man, you're in for a time. I first came across Tim Fall on the wonderful world of Twitter. His is a quiet, considered wisdom that charts a fair, reasonable, no-nonsense course through often difficult territory. It's a breath of fresh air. And then I read his bio. Turns out he's a judge. Unbiased and fair kind of comes with the job. Often, for those of us on the outside of the legal system, fighting for justice means raising our voice and fighting to be heard. For Tim, it's entirely different. I hope you'll enjoy today's chat as we talk about his book, Running for Judge, as well as the intersection of mental illness and public life, equality in church, and much more. I'm Kit Kennedy, and this is Unchurchable. Hello, Judge Tim Fall. How are you today? Doing well, thank you. That's good. Um, just before we hit hit record on this uh, session, you were saying that you finally get to see some blue skies in California, which is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> but prior to moving to the COVID capital of Australia, I lived out um, in a regional area that was quite prone to bushfires, as we call them over here. So it's a it's a feeling of kind of apocalyptic dread looking up at that red sky <laughs> that I'm quite familiar with. Um, I have to ask, what's the mood like over in the States where you are, given the wildfires, given the pandemic? It's an interesting year to be American. The uh, wildfires, I think, have uh, people on edge Mm -hmm. on top of uh, what they've been dealing with since March anyway. Uh, Mid-March is when uh, communities, regions uh, in uh, the U.S. started to go into... uh, shutdown um, or uh, distancing, things like that. And some regions never really adopted it. Others have uh, taken it on uh, wholeheartedly. Yeah, and obviously, as you are a judge, you can't really compl- uh, you can't really comment on things that would be deemed to be political. But it seems to be a time where um, it's revealed quite a deep split between the progressive christian crowd and the um the conservative christian crowd and navigating this space can be an interesting time for mental health which is a topic in your uh your book running for judge isn't it it's not often that we see the the intersection between public office and mental illness (laughs) playing out so thank you so much for giving us an insight into that why don't you tell me a little bit about how the book came to be and obviously your career as a superior court judge in northern california sure sure uh in california uh judges are state uh Mm -hmm. officials and uh, we sit in uh, courthouses around the state. Uh, Mm -hmm. Every county has at least one courthouse in it. Some have several. Um, You could imagine that Los Angeles County needs more than one building. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, they they have 450 judges in Los Angeles County alone. Wow, Um, that's amazing. We have have, uh, 1,600, 1,700 judges in the state. Mm. Uh, My county has about a dozen uh, judges. And uh, so we have these uh, state offices, even though we might be sitting in a courthouse that is not in the yeah. state capitol. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, I became a judge uh, back in 1995. Mm-hmm. And uh, back then, California had two levels of trial courts. And if you had less experience as an attorney, you could still be eligible for appointment to uh, the lower of the trial courts. Yeah. And that's what happened to me because I didn't have enough experience to get on the superior court at the time. So I became a municipal court judge. Municipal courts don't exist anymore. We changed the state constitution. And so now uh, I'm a superior court judge. uh, And so I've been a judge since 1995. Uh, I was appointed to fill out a term that um, had not yet expired, a judge who was no longer in the position. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had actually been elevated from the municipal to superior court, so I got put into her spot. Right. Fine. But since these are elected positions, 
yeah. we have to run for re-election. And yeah. most judges never get challenged. Uh, 1996, no challenge. 2002, no challenge. Yeah. Uh, which means, frankly, that we don't even appear on the ballot. We're just declared the winner uh, the oh, next day. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful thing. <laughs> it really is. So the day after the election, there we are, the winner. Yeah. Um, but then in 2008, somebody decided to run against me, and I had never mounted any sort of political campaign. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know anything about electioneering. And, yeah. uh, and then I had to run a campaign, and that's what the, the book is about, is the, the campaign. Uh, I talk about being a judge. I talk about mm. some funny stories from my childhood that relate to what happened to me as an adult. Yeah. Um, and uh, also the toll that uh, it took on me. Yeah. to uh, run for re-election uh, physically and mentally and ended up not only with a uh, diagnosis of uh, generalized anxiety disorder from all the stress wow. but pneumonia and oh, the pneumonia gosh. okay yeah the pneumonia knocked me out for three weeks um, mm. in let's see the election was in June and the pneumonia was in February so happily it was not <laughs> at the <laughs> heat of the campaign uh, but it was when I was supposed to be getting organized. Yeah, of course. And then I couldn't. Now, the election stress is something that is quite uh, quite inexplicable if you haven't been through it. Um, I have supported uh, my then husband as he ran for uh, local council. Um, I've also stood in elections before for parties that I well a party that I don't even vote for anymore um there you <laughs> it's go interesting time things can get quite personal and you have this feeling right well, well, I certainly had this feeling of you know you leave the house to I don't know go to the grocery store or something and you're there in the toilet paper aisle and being accosted by somebody going what are you going to do about this um and you it kind of changes um how you how how we felt about interfacing with even friends um and and you know and acquaintances because they'd be like oh now that you're kind of running for office you, you find your ear being chewed off <laughs> right. various different things what was it like for you when you're you know obviously it's quite rare for a judge to be um opposed what was it like for you putting yourself out there in that way uh, it was um it was uh i would say very uh much a vulnerable time uh mm -hmm. you have to put yourself in a vulnerable position. Uh, yeah. People get to ask you questions. They're entitled to get answers to things, mm -hmm. um, to uh, ask you about uh, what your philosophy is for uh, pursuing um, the uh, cases in court. And, yeah. and they ask you all sorts of things that some of which I can't answer. Um, mm -hmm. Somebody might be saying, well, I heard about this case that's happening at the courthouse right now. And I tell them, well, I can't talk about cases that are <laughs> pending at the courthouse right now. Yeah. Um, my opponent, uh, at one point in the campaign, we were doing a candidate's night at um, the League of Women Voters session. Yeah. And uh, League of Women Voters is an old, old organization in the United States <laughs> that uh, is not restricted uh, to yeah. women in the membership, but it was organized originally around uh, women and the votes. So the whole yeah. suffragette type thing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm at their candidate session and I explained I can't ethically respond to some questions somebody had about a particular case. Um, and my opponent got up and he said, well, I'm not going to let a little thing like ethics keep me from telling you what I think Ooh. about that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, a little I, thing like I thought, ethics. Yeah, I, I, I just thought, you keep talking, pal. That's, uh, that's good. You go right ahead. <laughs> My goodness. Now, a little thing like ethics, that brings us onto a juggernaut of a topic because you actually you, you uh, teach other judges about judicial ethics, don't you? Right, yeah. right. I have been teaching judicial ethics for, oh, 18 years, 17, 18, 18 years. years. That's that's a long time. Now, the the question, I guess the question I have might be a bit of a complicated one, but, um, you know, ethics, you're a Christian. Um, obviously, your faith doesn't necessarily um, influence your career in terms of, like, you have to be impartial and you have to abide by the law. But I've heard this kind of trope trotted out a little bit um amongst i suppose conservative christians over here in australia saying that ethics all come from the bible or uh, you know ethics 
you know, ethics or a Judeo-Christian thing that have made their way into, you know, democracy. And I, I often question that because the church um, over the, like the church universal over the last kind of few years has shown some true colors that hasn't been so nice. <laughs> right. So I'm interested in the interplay between so-called Christian ethics and judicial ethics and what you think as an egalitarian sort of Christian about the types of lives we should be living in terms of, um, you know, ethics and doing the right thing, even when that goes above and beyond the law. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's a big kind of picture to paint there. But where do you see the lines as being between Christian ethics and judicial ethics? One of the things when people say um, ethics is based on a Judeo-Christian system, I, I think they are um, getting at something that... Uh, if they looked at it more closely, they'd be able to say it more clearly. Mm -hmm. um, the Bible talks about having a conscience that uh, people are able to know right from wrong because yeah. that's how we are created. Yes, uh, And so that's why you can be in a country that has a strong Christian tradition and they say, don't rob banks, that's against the law. And you can be in a country that has absolutely no touch with a Christian tradition, and they say, don't rob banks. That's against the law. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it's because of how we're created, but it's not because of a direct tie to some sort of um, scriptural uh, mandate in writing. Uh, mm -hmm. And that somehow uh, has translated itself into uh, everybody's uh, legal system. Uh, so I, I think that when people are talking about um, God-given ethics. Yes, uh, that's true, and the Bible supports that. That's how we're made. Um, we're also living in a world where sin exists, and there's a lot of people who don't agree on what those ethics should be and how we should conduct ourselves. <laughs> I, I kind of have a bit of a giggle because um, it, this discussion calls to mind for me a quote by the great uh, C.S. Lewis, um, and in it, because he, obviously he was a, um, and this is the author of, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and... Um, Mere Christianity, other. and... Yeah, uh, oh, yeah. Mere Christianity. And I think it was in Mere Christianity that I read this. Obviously, uh, C.S. Lewis was an atheist um, prior to a very reluctant conversion to Christianity. Right. <laughs> but in it, he said that the stars were always, you know, people would say, oh, there has to be a God, look at the stars. And he, or, he said, well that was never much of a convincing factor to me. The convince, something that was quite convincing was that sense of right and wrong that seems to be inherent in all of us, um, right. regardless of, of how we've been taught or not. So, um, and obviously, like, I, I've watched with interest over the last few years as, um, as I myself have deconstructed out of a very conservative form of faith into a very... Uh, progressive form of faith and I've seen a lot of things that I used to take for granted as being you know conservative uh, the things that were very correct in that kind of far-right um, conservative way of thinking and now I'm looking at the church from a different perspective and going wow there's a lot of ways in which the church isn't actually holding up good pictures of justice and high ethical standards um, do you ever kind of uh, do you ever talk to Christians about about ethics and how what kind of standard we should be bearing forward? Um, on occasion, um, mm. it comes up in uh, some of the posts I've written on my blog. Yeah. Um, I do talk about uh, the uh, judicial ethics in my book. I talk about judicial ethics and people asking uh, what that means for me as a Christian. Yeah. And I've had this question a lot. Uh, I've written on it a bit uh, in blog posts and other places. But the question comes up a lot of, uh, well, what happens when you have a case where uh, your faith as a Christian uh, tells you to do one thing and the law tells you to do another? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I've, I've been a judge for 25 years. So I haven't had that yeah. case yet. If it comes along, I'll let you know. <laughs> um, but it, it's just, it's not like that comes up every day. People think you're going to have some sort of... Um, case where uh, I don't know somebody wants to kill a baby and you say no my Christian <laughs> ethics won't you know it's like I don't know yeah it's like I, I, I don't do the Solomon and the sword thing yeah. um, so I, I just don't get it uh, that question I, I think people are talking more of uh, well what if and could this ever happen I mean sure I guess um, yeah 
Now, in one of those blog posts, you wrote something that I really loved. You said, just because something's legal doesn't make it right. Just because everyone else approves doesn't make it good. Just right. because you can doesn't mean you should. Isn't that kind of the basis of it all? And I suppose, you know, right. where where should Christians stand in times where we see other maybe Christians doing things that aren't so good? Well, <laughs> sure, within, within the church... Uh, there's a lot of room to mm. talk about what is good and appropriate, uh, what uh, bears fruit of the Spirit, uh, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, if you are exhibiting those, uh, then that's examples or exhibits of the fruit uh, mm-hmm. coming out uh, in your life. Um, if you are loving God and loving others, uh, the two great commandments that Jesus spoke of, then yeah. you are um, doing right. As James uh, said in uh, his letter, and remember this is Jesus's little brother who's writing yeah. the letter of James, yeah. and he said, if you keep the royal law of love, you are doing well. Mm. And he was talking in the context of uh, loving others. Yeah. So, you know, I look at what's happening in church and I think, okay, if, if those things aren't happening, mm-hmm. if what's happening is something that is not loving and is not exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, then it's good for us to talk about it and make sure yeah. we understand it right. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if there's a, a preacher who goes on TV and says, um, you need God's mm-hmm. blessing and if you'd like me to pray for you to receive it, send me $1,000. You know, okay. <laughs> don't don't send a thousand dollars that's my first piece of advice and the second is that the tv preacher should stop saying that yeah now that is you know we laugh but it's actually uh something that happens oh and i've i've written about it a couple of times on my blog her name is uh paula white and that's the type of thing that she (laughs) preaches on on tv um, and it, but, you know we've seen it over the years in other kind of televangelists that have um, that I grew up with, I suppose. And I can say this: you can't. Paula White's actually an advisor to Trump, isn't she? Um, <laughs> no connection there, but we'll just we'll just skip right on from that topic. <laughs> um, what I find uh, another something that's been quite disconcerting for me is, um, I, and I'll talk about the Australian context. Um, so that's kind of well and truly out, out of your jurisdiction. Um, a lot of the time as Christians we take kind of um, you know we take advice from people behind pulpits um, and and we kind of assume in this kind of neo charismatic um, you know scene that they've got this special line to heaven and that um, that what they say is kind of more right or more blessed or more listenable than than what we ourselves think so how do Christians kind of um, and I've definitely moved away from the original question I was going to ask, but, you know, how do we as Christians kind of find our way when we don't have the biblical kind of uh, nous to actually challenge someone behind a pulpit or from a televangelist who might say, send me $1,000 or and I'll bless you or somebody who might um, get behind a cause that just doesn't quite gel well with us? How do we as deconstructing Christians or as Christians who have always been taught to listen without questioning to the people behind the pulpit, how do we find the right way forward if we just don't quite think that what's being said is correct? Um, I think it's good to talk about it with uh, friends, trusted friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes uh, sit down over coffee with uh, the lead pastor at my church yeah. um, and we just sit and we talk and you know often he has a lot of stuff that he's thinking through and he'll hey I want to run this by you mm-hmm. kind of thing and we'll talk about stuff like that I've got friends online uh, that I will reach out to um, yeah. you know we'll we'll email each other instead of maybe doing it publicly on Twitter or Facebook <laughs> um, yes, but uh, these gosh. are people I've connected with over the years um, and so I have those conversations uh, I got some friends that I'll just meet for lunch but so you talk it out, make sure you understand it. That's my first thought. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, it's really not that hard to understand that yeah. um, you know somebody who is, uh, for example, uh, saying women should uh, sit down, shut up, and go make sandwiches for the men. Um, mm-hmm. You know that it's okay to say that's not scriptural. The Bible yeah. does not teach that, um, yeah. and it is not 
uh, a good way to organize uh, the body of Christ. And I, I think that's just okay to go ahead and say it if that's uh, what you see happening. The, the example that you raise um, of, of women in, you know, doing anything other than be barefoot pregnant in the kitchen. <laughs> right. That is, that is actually a classic example that I haven't delved into much in this podcast yet. So perhaps we can spend a little bit of time on it. A lot of people would say that it is actually biblical to exclude women from ministry or from speaking. Um, and yet uh, the egalitarian kind of school that you come from uh, can very clearly say, no, this is, this is not true. Women should be um you know women are equal uh, what is the theological basis of that um, for those who are newbies to this whole right. egalitarian way of thinking right one thing is to look at what women actually did uh, in the bible mm-hmm. um, if the bible teaches that women cannot lead and cannot teach that would contradict where women are leading and are teaching in ways that uh, honor god Um, Think of Deborah, uh, uh, the judge in uh, the Old Testament. Think of Huldah, a prophet uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Miriam, another prophet in the Old Testament. Um, You look in the New Testament, there's Anna, who is a prophet in the temple. Uh, There's Philip's daughters, uh, who are prophets. Um, There is Lydia and Chloe, who lead Mm -hmm. churches in their homes. Uh, Priscilla who was a a co-teacher with her husband Aquila and uh, Paul uh, mentions Priscilla a couple of times as uh, a co-worker and uh, he doesn't say my assistant you know he just calls her a co-worker yes (laughs) Um, so these are things Uh, Junia uh, who is listed as an apostle in Romans 16 and so you look at that and you say okay so if those people existed and did what the Bible says they did, then what does that mean for these other passages that people would point to and say, see, that passage says women can't talk. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing it shows is that you need to study better uh, what scripture says about women. So when you get into the uh, passage in Corinthians where uh, Paul says um, a woman should remain silent in church, um, you have to study that and see that Uh, He is not teaching that a woman should stay silent in church. He's actually uh, toward the tail end of a list of questions that he's responding to. Yeah. And he's, it's explicit in the first couple of questions. It's almost like uh, a formal Q&A. You ask this, here's my answer kind of thing. And then as he goes along, uh, that uh, structure relaxes a bit. So people don't catch that when he says a woman should remain silent in the church, he's, he's saying, this is a point you raise. And then he goes on and says, and here's the response to that. Yeah. Uh, And uh, same thing when you look at um, Timothy uh, 3 and Titus 2 uh, and what it says about women and men in the church. You really need to dig in. Um, (laughs) Superficially reading scripture and saying, oh, now I understand it. Women can't talk. Um, It it just doesn't work. Uh, If you do the superficial reading, first off, then you have to explain what happened with Priscilla and Holda and those folks yeah. and why they were okay. Um, yeah. Or you just say, well, it says this. What does that really mean? Uh, you have a, uh, a country woman who has done a great job on this, uh, Margaret Moscow. Um, oh, yes, yes. She's an East Coast Australian like me. So. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> yeah. use her a lot. She's a very good theologian. Mm-hmm. Um, she... Uh, cites her sources. Uh, she's uh, a good writer, very um, accessible yeah. in her writing, talking about things that are being culled from uh, these really deep, uh, way too deep for me, uh, <laughs> yes. theological treatises. Yeah, wow. But she's yes. got the training and she knows how to read and, and understand and talk about things like that. Yeah, um, and I do love that. I, I really love her writing, and I've been meaning to get her on the podcast for a while. Um, but I suppose it's it's interesting to me to talk to you because I was raised complementarian, um, and and I would say soft complementarian in that it wasn't really trotted out from the pulpit 
that that women couldn't lead we would have women preach but it was always under the quote-unquote authority of a male pastor there mm-hmm. was a couple of uh female pastors within the network of churches that are, that we were in but you know i was a pastor's kid and i was kind of privy to the table talk about um about women in these roles and i observed within my own experience an empowerment of women to a point and uh, talking to some other people um in this podcast and um, and in real life, I suppose, I've, I've come to be aware of the fact that sometimes if the doctrine is out and out, like if it's it's really spelled out that we are complementarian, we do not believe that women should be able to speak in church or hold any authority, um, then it's almost less dangerous than if it's subtle and it creeps in there because then we internalize this message that we're not good enough, but we don't know why. Right. Um, so that's that's an interesting thing kind of to have the public faces being saying, oh, yes, we empower all people and then have, say, women or minorities or, you know, LGBTI people excluded from our experience of faith or excluded from certain roles in the church or, you know, whatever. You have never been a complementarian, have you? You've always been quite egalitarian. Yes, I have. Yeah. So did that come from kind of (laughs) your law training in that you sort of read the Bible and on on the basis of, you know, precedent and gone, oh, well, that context has to carry across from there? Or was it simply the way you were raised? It goes back to my childhood. Uh, I've I've always seen women doing things that uh, they they aren't uh, able to be categorized as uh, that's a woman thing to do. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I remember uh, my dad, uh, he was raised on the ranch and yes. uh, two boys and two girls growing up. And uh, so there he is raised on the ranch and his dad had them all out handling cattle and his mom had them all inside uh, learning how to cook and sew oh, buttons onto shirts and things. What a woman. I don't know. How and to sew a button onto so, uh, <laughs> so that's what they did. Well, his mom was certainly, uh, my grandmother was a... Uh, 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 you can't ca- quite call it a housewife, a ranch wife, I guess. Yeah. Um, but anyway, when I was growing up, uh, that was my dad's philosophy. Everybody, yeah. all you kids are going to learn how to cook, and all you kids yeah. are going to learn how to sew a button on a shirt and mm-hmm. everything in between. And at one time, my brother, who was the oldest, made the mistake when my dad said something needed to be done. He made the mistake of saying, that's women's work. Oh. <laughs> And my dad was having none of it. And he said, <laughs> essentially, there is no such thing as women's work. Uh, now, if you want to have uh, that chore for a week instead of for today, you know, keep talking. And <laughs> <laughs> so my brother quieted down pretty quick um, and got the job done. Oh, uh, I love that. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so that's part of it, just being yeah. raised like that. Um, and then... The other part is, uh, you know, I was born in 1960. I remember the Summer of Love, 1967. Mm-hmm. I remember Women's Lib. I remember yeah. uh, the uh, hippies because I grew mm-hmm. up um, about uh, 15 minutes from the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco. <laughs> uh, wow, so, that's cool. And we'd drive uh, through Golden Gate Park and then out through the Haight, and the hippies would be there. Uh, I remember the uh, Civil Rights Movement. I remember the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment uh, Movement. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I grew up there where I was in high school in the 70s uh, and then on into college. And so when I started reading the Bible, I didn't have this preconceived notion that uh, men ran things and women didn't. Yeah. Uh, so I read it and I just took it the way it was. Yeah. Um, and I got to these difficult passages that is difficult, meaning you can't take them at face value. Mm-hmm. And I would think, OK, so there's Deborah. And there's a line that says women can't have authority over men. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Deborah had authority over men. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. so what do you do with that? So that just told me, because I didn't become a Christian until I was uh, in my early 20s, uh, my last year of college, yeah. uh, or you might call it university. Yes, as, yes, uh, yes, yes. So, uh, which was actually my sixth year uh, to get a bachelor's degree. Um, <laughs> and uh, But by that time, you know, I'm in my early 20s. I know how to read. I know how to study. And yeah. so I just saw these things and I thought, okay, well, I guess I need to work on understanding this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I... I, reading beyond face value is a, is a really interesting thing. Um, growing up conservative, 
uh, one of the lines that I heard over and over and over again is the Bible is clear on this. The Bible is clear on this. And yet there are very few things that the Bible is clear on <laughs> right. when, when you read it in practicality. So, so digging beyond is, is something really important and also being able to, um, I think, use good research skills in terms of connecting with people who can actually teach you more about certain things. And everybody's got their kind of area of expertise, don't they? So Marg Moscow is one who's great on egalitarian theology. Right. Um, who are who some of the other, you know, voices that you've chosen to kind of listen to? Because obviously you're a very, um, you know, educated person and you, you bring a lot of, you know, really good perspective to some complex issues um, in, in your life as a judge and a Twitter person and, and all of those things. Well, another one is uh, Gail Wallace and her daughter, Kate Wallace Nunnally. Um, uh, Gail is uh, in uh, Southern California, um, yeah. just outside of Los Angeles. Uh, there's um, Pasadena and uh, Azusa and a string of towns. So she's out there. Her husband retired as the president of Azusa Pacific University, a, a yeah. Christian university in the Eastern Basin there. And yeah. uh, so anyway, she's one who has written a lot on this. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, they have a website uh, called the Junia Project, J-U-N-I-A Project. Uh, oh, and so yes, they have a lot of, of great resources there. Uh, mm -hmm. Not only their own writings, but they bring in a lot of guest writers as well. Mm -hmm. um, I've done a guest post for them, but you know I'm a layperson writing on these things. Uh, they have the uh, professional theologians who yeah. write on these as well. Um, and so that's a good resource. Yeah. And then there's also um, CBE, or Christians for Biblical Equality, yeah. uh, which has been around for a long, long time, decades. Yeah. And uh, they do a lot of good writing, uh, publishing on it. Yeah. It's... Um and, and the reason I ask you for these resources is I, I actually had um, a listener write to me last week, having listened to another podcast, um, which was, you know, it was a woman doing it. And then uh, like the woman who, who was, you know, on this podcast and then the further on it got, the, the more it became clear that this woman believed that... Um, that equality between men and women was a sin and and even had some beliefs that were kind of heading in a fairly white supremacist way but because this person this podcast had been recommended by the friends and it was kind of a pastor running it it was a bit of a sucker punch <laughs> and right. if we're if we're taught to just listen to the people in authority and these people are presented to us as authorities it can actually be a very jarring thing to go oh hang on no 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 hold the phone this is not good um now, you mentioned before that you have a great pastor who can actually kick around ideas with. Was that something that you had to kind of fish around for and, and go looking for? Because I think that's yeah. a big asset for somebody, especially and in your role, anybody really. We had uh, been at a church for a long, long time, uh, yeah. 25, 30 years, mm -hmm. and uh, it was time to move on. Yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, we then went to a few different places um, mm -hmm. that uh, some that we'd had some connection with before we'd maybe gone to a service there with a friend yeah. or something. Um, others that had been recommended, uh, some that we just thought, hey, let's check that one out. Mm -hmm. uh, we finally uh, settled on this one that we've now been at for four or five years. Yeah. Um, and the uh, thing that attracted us is the utter lack of legalism. Um, <laughs> it is a, a refreshing um, breath of uh, the gospel of Jesus right. uh, through um, the uh, preaching and the ministry um, and uh, all of the things that the church does. They're very active in the community um, and 90% uh, of the people who go there are much more conservative than I am uh, in uh, social views. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd say that uh, if they sat down and asked me some of the stuff that <laughs> I uh, hold yeah. to, I'd, I'd come across as a flaming liberal. But uh, <laughs> but hearing um, this gospel of grace uh, being preached um, and growing in that grace, uh, knowledge and uh, the uh, life of, of Jesus uh, being... Yeah 
uh, lived through me uh, by the Spirit of Christ. Uh, these are the things that have uh, brought us there and, and which keep us there. Yeah. Now, I think that's, it's an important thing. Um, we actually, as Christians, have the right to, and perhaps the responsibility to find a place of best fit for us. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, Australia, where I'm from, is a very rural nation in that, um, aside from the major cities, which is kind of one in every um, <laughs> mm-hmm. in every state or territory, uh, you can you might be struggling to find somewhere in a local area that um, that lines up with you in terms of in terms of beliefs. Or but you know it's still good to actually go looking for best fit. It doesn't mean you're a bad Christian if you go looking for best fit or if you kind of drive somewhere that's an hour away once a month and will find other ways to kind of um, engage with church or Christian community in order to kind of build up your faith and your walk with God. But it's, it's, it's good to make sure that it's, it's somewhere where you can ask questions and kick around difficult ideas or even for a pastor to be able to go, yeah, I've struggled with that one too. Let's, let's right. look into it. Right. Um, I, I want to ask you another question. Um, it's been an interesting time over the last maybe four years in terms of some things that I thought were stamped out within church re-showing their ugly heads and I'm referring to uh, a bit of white nationalism now um, the scenario I'll refer to is well outside of America Um, I think it was last year or the year before that um, somebody released a a manifesto and then walked into a New Zealand mosque and um, killed a large amount of people and it turned out that that manifesto flushed out some really ugly uh, kind of um, sentiments within Australia and New Zealand and, and all over the world with people who actually kind of agreed with that um, that very strongly racist narrative and very Islamophobic and you know you mentioned growing up in the 60s with the women's liberation movement and the equality um, thing we're now seeing the Black Lives Matter movement in America and um, and in Australia too we've had the protests over here um, and it's a good time to kind of look at our own beliefs and, and ask ourselves where we fall. Um, how does a Christian handle when somebody who, somebody else who is a Christian comes out with this rhetoric that is deeply flawed? How do we handle that in grace? And how do we look after ourselves mental health-wise when we find ourselves being dragged into the mire and feeling a lot of empathy <laughs> with the people who are being harmed by it? Any wisdom? I have uh, come to the point where uh, saying that racism is sin, uh, that it's demonic, uh, ungodly, satanic, uh, those are words that roll off my tongue now. Um, Racism, uh, there is no way to uh, sugarcoat it. And if it's happening in the church, um, it is unchristlike and it needs to stop. And I remember uh, years ago, 25, 30 years ago, uh, hearing a sermon from a pastor who was new to the church, uh, had been called there recently, yeah. and I'm not sure what prompted his comment from the pulpit during the sermon, but he let it be known. He, he said, um, if anyone says something racist, whether you're trying to tell a joke or anything else, I'm not going to listen to it. I will come down on you like a ton of bricks. Good. And I thought, oh, nice, nice sermon. You could stop right now. Yeah, that's done. <laughs> right? That's it. Yeah, um, you know, it's like, yeah, that'll preach. Um, and I appreciated it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering who said something to him the week <laughs> preceding. Um, yes. But uh, now, uh, today, we have, <laughs> we've got these people who are posting repeatedly online yeah. uh, things that are anywhere from. Um, uh, outright racist to uh, at least if, if they're not outright racist they may be unwittingly saying things that will uh, per- yeah. uh, perpetuate racism mm-hmm. and and so if I see somebody where I think well I can't say that you are showing <laughs> that you have said something you have intended to be racist you have said something that perpetuates racism for yeah. example um, someone says Black Lives Matter. Someone responds with All Lives all Matter. All Lives Matter. Yeah. Yeah. And so I will, at times, jump in and say, you know, All Lives Matter, uh, whether you intend it or not, perpetuates mm-hmm. the racist issues 
uh, and here's why. Um, you know, it's so, and then if somebody says Black Lives Matter and somebody else says, no, they don't, then, then I say, <laughs> uh, okay, now you're just being racist and that's evil. So you need to stop. Yes. yes. So we can drop the E word when right. <laughs> we right. exit our right. But it, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I think you and I have possibly read the very same comments, even though we'd be reading them from very, very different people. Um, and it's interesting the way subtly bad theology can creep in and mm -hmm. um, even to places that are supposed to be well-intentioned and, you know, full of the love of God and, you know, full of grace, even in those places, if we don't challenge bad theology, it can perpetuate. And I know there's a certain degree of irony in two white people talking about racism, but hey, um, I think it's also a place for, you know, all of us to be thinking about how we can stop things like this. And definitely a struggle I've faced and a struggle a lot of my listeners face is the right to challenge people if they are pastors or leaders who come out with this sort of rubbish. Um, right. Because it can be hard to call it out as rubbish or even to call it out as evil. And sadly, some of the white nationalism that I've witnessed within Australia has actually come from clergy members, um, right. which is really sad. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm seeing it uh, from people whose uh, online bios show that they are pastors at a church. Yep. And I'm mm -hmm. just thinking, you really need to not be in leadership if that's what yep. you're promoting. And I think it's great that white people are speaking out uh, on racist issues because mm -hmm. um, we're the ones who have to tell other white people to stop it. Um, yep. You know, it it's not up to those who are the victims of racism yep. uh, to somehow convince the oppressors to stop. Yes. Um, you know, we, yes. did, we need to uh, get on this ourselves and, yep. and put a stop to it. Yeah. And I think this kind of is a very important thing because a trend that I've noticed within um, within Christianity, I suppose, um, and for context, um, I came from quite a quite a fun. Well, I'll, I'll call it quite fundamentalist in its beliefs, even though it was very evangelical. And um, but I think evangelicalism can be a type of fundamentalism these days. Mm -hmm. um, it was quite dominionist in its theology and very anti-LGBT. So um, my wonderful ex-husband was actually put through uh gay conversion therapy and um and then we were kind of set up um and you know we married and had 10 wonderful years together before it became clear that he really is gay mm -hmm. <laughs> um so that was the deconstruction journey for me it was that's one of the things that was part of it was going okay how has this happened right. um and actually becoming a, an ally because I would sit back and go, wow, this is the treatment that people are, are getting within church and the exclusion and all these different stuff. Anyway, um, what I've found is when people kind of leave conservative or complementarian theology and kind of migrate over to a more egalitarian um, and affirming theology in a lot of cases, um, what happens is we leave one echo chamber and we move into another echo chamber. Right. And then there's no cross-pollination between the two. And I suppose some people could argue and go, well, you've seen the light, you've come across the progressive, you don't need the cross-pollination from the conservative side. Well, the point is there should be tension. There should be kind of, there should be some uh, sort of, um, you know, deep contemplation that goes on. And to be challenged by somebody who's more conservative than you is always a good thing because it strengthens you in your um, your beliefs, it strengthens you in your ability to, to argue these things. But as long as these two echo chambers continue, we can't really defend people who are being, um, you know, hurt by toxic theology people like women <laughs> right. um, who are in these churches that say that they, you know, only have very kind of finite roles or, and, and people like, this is my passion project, I suppose, is LGBT people who are being told that um, they're sort of the one exception to the rule that God gave his son for all of us. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when we move across into this progressive kind of space, often we stop actually talking to those who are back on the other conservative side of things because, my gosh, the arguments that can be flushed out. <laughs> and, you know, we feel hit by that and we kind of shrink back from that. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that's just a, a little kind of sidebar. <laughs> One um, of the things that I've found mm -hmm. really helps online uh, is um, having 
connections with people who don't necessarily fall into whatever someone thinks my camp is. Um, So Amy Bird uh, is someone that I read a lot. Now, she is um, not egalitarian. Um, Karen Swallow Pryor, uh, the same, uh, not egalitarian uh, in the slightest. Um, But um, I read uh, what they write because they are extremely intelligent people who write very well Mm -hmm. and have a lot to say. Um, so that, that's just two examples of of yeah. them. Uh, Karen and Amy are also friends of mine, yeah. but that came after I started reading uh, their ah, writing. Um, yes. And uh, then we became friends over time and stay in touch. So, you know, it's it's important uh, if you see an echo chamber to, to get out of it. Now, it's mm-hmm. okay not to um, uh, wade deeply into some of the extremely toxic yeah. places out there there are some yeah. parts of the web where the people are teaching things that are so horrible mm-hmm. that i don't need to immerse myself in it in order to say that i have uh truly touched all bases yeah yeah i wholeheartedly agree with that um i sort of i sit back sometimes when i look at the kind of content that i'm curating for myself and you know, I know a Facebook friends list doesn't seem like curated content, but you do have an unfollow button. <laughs> you do have options. Um, what I found is I'd have to sit and, and go, okay, is this person coming at this argument from a place of winning or a place of listening? Um, are they, you know, are they really bigots or are they well-intentioned people who believe that they're kind of behind the truth? And I have to just kind of sit and think about this and then choose whether or not to engage with those people. And you're right. There are some people that are, you know, not a flaming liberal like me, um, (laughs) who are actually beautiful people. Um, so we all have a choice to kind of curate our content and choose who we listen to. And it's, and you're absolutely right. If you find yourself in an echo chamber, get out of that. (laughs) Right. Because we, we all need to kind of take responsibility for our our own kind of, um, representation of Christ to the world, I suppose. Um, now I had a question and it just fell out of my head because I was on a soapbox. Don't you love it when that happens? Let me, um, (laughs) let me tell you about something that uh, I talk about in the book, uh, Mm -hmm. but you mentioned LGBT and this goes back to people saying, well, what happens if you have a case where you can't do it because you're a Christian. Um, One of the things that, uh, especially when I would handle mostly civil cases, is I would do uh, name change petitions. Mm -hmm. And um, people get name changes for lots of different reasons. Um, One of the things in California is you can apply jointly for a name change and a gender change. Uh Um, And uh, it has... um, documentation from a physician and things like that on it. Yeah, yeah. So um, I write in the book about one of the hearings that went like that. You know, and some people will ask me, well, how can you uh, uh, preside over uh, changing someone's gender? Uh, Christians mm-hmm. shouldn't do that. And so I, in that case, I, I do point back to Solomon and yeah. uh, taking the sword and, and splitting the baby in half uh, yeah. proposal and all that. Uh, because one of the uh, interesting things that I didn't realize in that story until, I don't know, the 20th, 30th time I'd read it, uh, yeah. just a few years ago, it came to me somehow that when um, they came to him, the narrative says two prostitutes. Ah. Solomon never once brought up their profession, yeah. and he did not refuse to hear the case because it would mean somehow supporting prostitution. He yeah. just heard the case and made a decision. Yeah. Yeah. And so when people say, well, how can you do a, a marriage dissolution? How can you do mm-hmm. a, a name and gender change or something like that? It's like, well, yeah. I don't know. Solomon, wisest guy ever. Um, yeah. He he didn't take those into account. He had a court case and he heard the yeah. case and made a decision. Yeah. So when people come into my court, I hear the court case and I make a decision. And if you have a problem with me doing that as a Christian, then, you know, wait till you get to heaven and talk to Solomon about it because I'm just <laughs> following his example. 
I like that because um, the reality is life is complicated um, and as much as we can think you know can hope it's not um, right you know sometimes things happen and and we can't control them and um, and we end up in these positions um, and certainly the issue of divorce is one that I never thought I'd be dealing with um, but here we are and you know I never really understood the transgender thing um, mm-hmm. Until I started, you know, connecting with people that I never would have heard, that I never would have made the time for back in my holier-than-thou, more conservative days. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I found is that these people have gone deep. They've, you know, they've done the work. They've had the therapy. They've, you know, had the brain scans in some cases. And this is not something that they you know this they've, they've they've done everything and we need to be able to give these people the grace and dignity to um to live their authentic lives um so you know i i've changed and i'm kind of sorry that i didn't change earlier but i guess mm-hmm. all of us have to be graceful with ourselves as humans for, for right. where we've been in error and where we move to a position of being more graceful and more um empathetic and um yeah more on the side of social justice. Well, you um, know, and part of it too is they, people are people. And yeah. <laughs> you know, in the church, out of the church, uh, whatever. Um, yeah. I've got uh, friends who are um, uh, same-sex attracted uh, mm-hmm. and uh, not celibate. Um, mm-hmm. And they are uh, people of strong faith who have helped me uh, in yeah. my own faith. And I know there are some listeners who are going to say, well, the reality is you don't have faith and neither do they. Okay, fine. You go right ahead and think that. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and then others who are uh, not uh, fellow uh, believers, but yeah. um, I'm very close to. And I've written about uh, my friend Dave a couple of times on my blog. Um, and he's a judge uh, in Southern California. And yeah. we met by being on some statewide committee and board stuff mm-hmm. uh, many years ago. So we've known each other 10 plus years now yeah um we get together at conferences um if i'm down in san diego i'll try to meet up with him for lunch or dinner if my wife is with me uh she'll come along and Mm -hmm. uh sometimes his husband comes along as well well it turned out the first time that his husband todd and my wife liz joined us for dinner liz and todd hit it off so well she laughed (laughs) at everything he said all night long Uh, they hit it off great and um, her family is from San Diego, so when she needed an attorney in San Diego to handle some estate matters for her family, yeah. she hired Todd uh, yeah. to be her attorney. So yeah. those two got along great. Well, you know, the thing about Dave, you know, some people would say, well, it's fine if you have a, a close friend who's gay, but that yeah. means that your conversation should always be you telling him how bad he is and uh, why he yeah. needs, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, no. <laughs> yeah. I was, you know, I'm... I am not getting uh, involved in uh, someone's relationship with God. Um, mm-hmm. I have friends who are gay and lesbian who have very strong faith. Yeah. So, you know, don't tell me that that's my job with Dave and Todd. Uh, yeah. And then yeah. we get to something else. You're probably familiar with the Billy Graham rule um, uh, with uh, yes. <laughs> you know, the idea that, that a man should never be alone with a woman kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, Dave and I, we go to lunch or dinner without our spouses. Yeah. Nobody has ever asked me why I'm going to dinner with Dave <laughs> uh, without my wife or his husband along. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, the Billy Graham rule might say don't do that. Well, mm-hmm. you know, seriously, folks, you're just making up these rules as you go along. Nobody <laughs> applies it the way that Billy did. Um, and he created it for a very specific reason at a time when it was extremely important and at a time when women weren't doing the same job that he was doing. Um, yeah. So, yes, that's it, yeah. there's a whole lot of interesting things you raise there. Um, I second you on the LGBT friends that you have that um, have a very deep walk with God. I've got some uh, wonderful friends who um, are LGBT. They, I've got some wonderful friends who kind of um, who are you know LGBT, and they've really gone deep with their faith in a way that I haven't because I've never been challenged the way they have. Right. Um, I've never, I've, I've sat in this place of, I suppose, straight privilege. Um, I've never had to sit in a church and hear a message or hear a sermon that denigrated who I was. I've never had to hear that. They have, and they have actually found 
um, a way of connecting with the true grace of God and with the true love of God, I think. Um, but they've had to fight for it. And I actually right. think that makes them stronger um, and a lot of them more informed in their theology. And, um, you know, I've got some beautiful non-binary or transgender friends as well. And for some of them, church has been made impossible for right. them. But God shouldn't be made impossible for them. And I suppose that's the reason that I podcast is because a lot of us have been excluded from church on various different reasons for various different reasons. But that doesn't right. mean that God has excluded us or that we should, you know, not have that right to pursue faith. It does mean we have to do it with more intention. It does mean we actually have to devote time to it because we might be seeking out the articles to read or the people to listen to <laughs> or the people that we can sit down and have lunch with and kind of kick ideas and philosophy around. And it's a beautiful thing when you can make this an intentional life choice to, to devote yourself to faith, even though you don't have a church family necessarily at this point in your life, maybe that's going to carry you um, in that. So it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, what would you say to people who think that social justice warriors are always anti-God or anti-church? Um, I would point them to Luke chapter four, mm -hmm. uh, Jesus's first synagogue sermon. And he is handed the scroll of Isaiah and he reads about uh, setting captives free, giving sight to the blind, uh, the sick are made well, uh, the year of the Lord has come. And then he sets the scroll down, hands it back to the attendant and says, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. And I just think, okay, anybody who thinks that social justice is not a gospel issue yeah. has not read Luke chapter four and understood it. And I brought that up one time in an online discussion with somebody mm -hmm. who was saying uh, social justice is not a gospel issue. I said, okay, Luke chapter four. He said, uh, yeah, all of that freedom and healing and you're <laughs> the Lord, all of that is spiritual. There is no physical aspect to it. Uh? And I hear that and I think, well, then why on earth have the incarnation? Why, mm -hmm. why would Jesus even bother to come back on earth physically why would he or bother to come to earth physically uh, if uh, the physical has no meaning and and yeah. we're told the physical does a uh, book of mm -hmm. Hebrews says without blood there's no remission of sin you know we, we have a lot of um, physical um, uh, hints of what happened in Old Testament times that lead yeah. us to New Testament understandings but yeah I'm sorry if if Luke chapter 4 in that sermon is just a matter of spiritualizing uh, what are truly physical events, uh, yep. setting captives free and and mm -hmm. uh, giving sight to the blind. Um, if it's just spiritual, then uh, there's really not much reason for Jesus to have had a three-year ministry. Yeah. Uh, if if all if, if it's just a matter of, of shedding blood on the cross, it's just okay. Yep. Uh, live, get crucified, rise from the grave. That's what we needed. <laughs> yeah. But but we don't. We 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 do other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm that's yeah, that's really interesting. I like what you've I like what you said about Solomon. I like that you said that it came after the thirtieth time that you'd read that scripture. <laughs> um I think I think we've got to keep reading, don't we? We've got to keep right. reading the same thing over and over again. We've got to never take it at face value. Now I suppose um, I've got about two minutes left with you here. Um, so I'm going to kind of finish on a clangor, I suppose. Um, 2020 has been an interesting year. We've got, uh, we've got pandemics, we've got social justice movements, we've got, you know, environmental events, we've got um, all sorts of things that can really make a person feel quite locked in, feel quite anxious. And we know that the human spirit really isn't made for captivity that way. You've walked through anxiety um, and depression. What would right. you tell people who during this time are experiencing flare-ups or exacerbations of an existing mental illness or who are experiencing anxiety or depression for the first time? Right. Um, I would tell them that uh, I have had my anxiety go through the roof um, mm -hmm. this year. Yeah. And um, I have been on uh, anti-anxiety medication. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. under the care of my doctor. Uh, you know, the brain chemicals uh, need to be uh, regulated appropriately. Yeah. And in a healthy brain, they are. But mm -hmm. when you get stressed out like we are now, uh, that can go out the window for a lot of people. 
25% uh, of people will experience anxiety, depression, or both, mm -hmm. which means one in four, which means everybody either is anxious or depressed, or they know somebody who is. There, yeah. There's nobody who has never had contact with an anxious or depressed person. So mm -hmm. it's normal. It's, yep. it's typical. And get help for it. I, I put in my book, you know, when someone says a um, mental illness is all in your head, I say, yeah, and a heart attack is all in your chest, but go see a doctor either way. <laughs> yes. Yes. Amen. Amen. I, uh, I wholeheartedly agree. Do you know, this, I actually went to my doctor this week. Um, well, my new doctor, because I've just moved to a new, a new place. And she said to me, because um, I was like, oh, I'll come off antidepressants soon. And she said, um, she said, no. If you're on antidepressants, the rule of thumb, or the rule of thumb that she was quoting anyway, was don't even consider talking to your doctor, or don't even consider coming off them until 12 months after you started feeling good. And she was right. like, 2020 is not your year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think it's a time to be kind to ourselves because um, we're meant to experience stress in short bursts and then return to a state of ease. But 2020 hasn't really been a year that's allowed us too much of that ease. So take care of yourself out there, people. Um, Thank you, Tim Fall, for coming along today and talking to us. There's been a lot of little gems of, of um, wisdom along the way. Um, tell us where we can find your book and where we can find your socials, please. If you go to uh, Amazon, you'll find it uh, in ebook and paperback. If you go to Audible, uh, you'll find an audiobook, uh, Running for Judge by Tim Fall. You can go to timfall.com. That's my blog. There's a contact page on there, which has my other connections, but uh, you can search my name on Twitter and Facebook uh, and connect with me that way too. Wonderful. I find that Tim is always the voice of reason and the voice of calm in some in some turbulent times, so you won't regret uh, following him there. And if you're into kind of egalitarian theology, uh, we've also always got some gems as well. Thank you for talking to us today, Tim. I hope our paths will cross again very soon. Completely my pleasure.